Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we start with Carmen Wynant. The Minneapolis Institute of Art is exhibiting Wynant's The Last Safe Abortion through December 31st. The show features Wynant's assemblages of historical photographs gathered from across the Midwest that detail the work of providing health care to women. That work includes answering phones, presenting training sessions, scheduling appointments, and more. The Last Safe Abortion was curated by Casey Riley. Wynant's work typically explores representations of women through strategies such as collage and installation. Her exhibition credits include the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, the Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh, Sculpture Center in Queens, the Bemis in Omaha, the Institute of Contemporary Art Boston, and a great many venues in Europe. On the second segment, Nagar Azimi joins me to discuss Van Leo at the Hammer Museum. Please remember to give us a five-star rating and a review wherever you listen to the program. Carmen Wynant, after the break. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Lyle Ashton Harris, Our First and Last Love, drawing together photographs and installations from both his celebrated and lesser-known series, The exhibition charts new connections across the artistic practice of Lyle Ashton Harris, who was born in the Bronx, New York, in 1965. The exhibition explores Harris's critical examination of identity and self-portraiture while tracing central themes and formal approaches in his work of the last 35 years. Lyle Ashton Harris, Our First and Last Love, on view at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University from August 24th to January 7th, 2024. Located in the heart of downtown Berkeley, at the edge of the University of California campus, the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive is one of the nation's leading university art museums, a locally rooted, globally relevant institution that connects audiences with the most exciting artists and filmmakers of our time. Uniquely dedicated to both art and film, BAMFA hosts more than a dozen art exhibitions, hundreds of film screenings, and countless public programs each year, with a growing emphasis on contemporary work by Black, Asian, and Latinx voices. To see what's on view and plan a visit, go to BAMFA.org. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Jean Quick to See Smith, Memory Map, organized by the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. For nearly five decades, Jean Quictesy Smith, a citizen of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Nation, has charted an exceptional and unorthodox career. The exhibition highlights more than 100 works, including her drawings, prints, paintings, and sculptures. Memory Map is the largest and most comprehensive showcase of Smith's career. Organized thematically, the exhibition offers a new framework to consider contemporary Native American art, addressing how Smith has initiated and led some of the most pressing dialogues around land, racism, and cultural preservation. It celebrates the artist's dedication to creativity and community, emphasizes her deep political commitments, and offers essential and potent reminders of our responsibilities to the earth and each other. On view at The Modern, October 15th through January 21st. More at themodern.org. And we're back. Carmen Wynan, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. For much of your career, you've made large, huge, room-sized installations that show what fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is, looks like to women or, or how something has been created for and by women, how something is experienced by women. When did you realize that that foundation, because I think it's more intense in your work 
than a centering. It's just kind of bedrock. When did you realize that that, founda- that, that that was a foundation or going to be a foundation of your work? Well, maybe I could start from the beginning. And by the beginning, I mean my life and encounters with images as a teenager. Like a lot of teenagers, I don't think I'm unique in this regard. I lived inside of images. In my case, you know, there weren't just images littering the walls. There were images on top of images on top of images. I mean, it was nearly archaeological. And I was always really compelled in ways that are still difficult for me to describe to live inside of images, to be immersed and ensconced by images. It wasn't something that I wanted to encounter frontally. And so when I went to college, I went to UCLA and I, I studied photography and I wanted to make images that achieved that feeling, that effect. And for years, I authored my own images. And for years, I felt frustrated by you know, sort of the outcome of authoring my own images. And slowly and over time, and really these are the kinds of things that are so messy when they're happening, and I can only speak about this way retrospectively, but I started to, to push the camera aside. And I did that first by taking pictures of existing pictures, which I did for years, and then sort of slowly sort of thinking about those primary objects, you know, that I was taking photos of in their own right and sort of tending to them as original things, right, that circulate in the world that are touched and imprinted by other people as much as a photograph can be an original object. And it was around that time, too, that my my own politics were crystallizing, that my sort of commitment to and curiosity about feminist history ideology, radical social movement building was coming into focus. And so I really wanted to think about, yes, as you suggest, what fill in the blank looks like for women, right? Like menstruation, masturbation, abortion, sex, healthcare. But in a larger sense, I wanted to think about and continue to push on this, to think about how photographs have been harnessed by folks in the struggle, right? How they have been used as a tool of radical coalition building and solidarity making. And so that remains sort of at the center of my practice and, you know, how I, how I construct projects really from the bottom up. That process you just described, did it come out of, say, studying feminist art or studying under certain feminist professors at UCLA, or did it come from, you know, reading, reading radicalism, reading and understanding histories of radicalism? Because I think I have a pretty good guess about one of the artists who's probably motivated a lot of what you've done. I'm curious about what you're going to say. A little bit of both. I studied with Kathy Opie at, at UCLA across many classes, who is such an important mentor to me, hired me after I, after I graduated and was desperate for a gig, and has been supportive across my life. So her support was seminal in all sorts of ways. I wish I could say that while I was at UCLA, I took a single class in women's gender, gender and sexuality studies. I did not. I did not take a single class. And, you know, they have a world-renowned department. I began to educate myself. So I read a lot. And I was and remained particularly interested in radical feminist literature, or foundational literature from the 70s in particular, 
And I just devoured books by, I mean, you name it, you know, everything from like Simone de Beauvoir to Kate Millett, right? And beyond into, you know, contemporary feminist writers and thinkers with a particular interest in Marxist and socialist, you know, feminists, philosophers and, you know, thinkers, activists. So this is a long-winded answer. I'd be happy to get more in, into the, you know, into the granular specifics if desired. But I kind of educated myself in a certain way and found affinity in some cases with people who not only had written books before I was born, but died before I was born or certainly died before I came to know them and sort of reached back into the living archive that is radical feminist history it's hard to say how and why we have the affinities that we do, you know? All I can say is that when I encounter those texts, and of course, when I encounters, encountered mentors like Kathy and beyond, I felt an incredible spark, an incredible kind of aliveness, an incredible sense of inquiry about the world in which I was embedded, you know, and my sort of agency and dignity within I also grew up in a feminist household, which doesn't which doesn't hurt, and which is something that I think about a lot now as I'm a parent myself. Your methodologies and installation strategies, to say nothing of your interests, seem pretty closely related to Andrea Bowers. Well, Andrea Bowers, you know, is a fellow Ohio person. <laughs> as our former man podcast before. guest. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes, I mean one thing that I, I admire so much about Andrea Bowers and other artists in the struggle is the way in which they manifest care inside of the work that they do and build relationships and invest in reciprocity inside of the process, right? That that it's not only a matter of representation and the politics of representation, but in fact that that need be a part of how the work is made and not only sort of its ultimate outcome. That's that's a lesson that I have only slowly learned and in some ways learned the hard way and something that I have become increasingly invested in. And I look to artists like Bowers, you know, who have led the way on that. The installation at the MIA that we are about to talk about in, you know, with greater specificity, particularly struck me as being related to Bowers's Letters to an Army of Three a 2005 work that collages mail, snail mail, snail mail for the kids, sent to <laughs> Rowena Gurner, Patricia McGinnis, and Lana Clark Phelan in the years during which they crusaded for abortion access in the late 1960s and early 70s, a work Bowers and I discussed on the Man Podcast a couple of years ago. We'll have a link to that in the show notes on manpodcast.com. So as I understand it, you created the archive of these photographs, the pictures in The Last Safe Abortion at the MIA, yourself, which is to say you got in your car and traveled across the Midwest to make a lot of the pictures. Presumably, you could have constructed a different but related installation from extant photographs, from archival images, dot, dot, dot. Why did you choose to hit the road? Well, let me first address very briefly the Army of Three work, which was so such had such a significant impact on me, and which I am perhaps embarrassed to say was my first introduction to the Army of Three and to McGinnis's work in particular, who is a national hero and who only died recently. You know, to be fair, that's sort of why Bowers made it, though, right? Indeed, indeed, it does its work. It does yeah. its work, really, and it's demonstrative of 
what art can be, what art can do in some ways at its best, you know, and maybe we can talk about this in a bit, but I waffle myself, you know, as an artist about, you know, my role in what I've been calling the struggle, right? When, what we could call, you know, solidarity building, you know, the sort of social alliance network that is abortion resistance and care. Am I doing enough as an artist? Can art be and do enough? And I think that that is an example <laughs> of a moment in which it did and can, Bowers's work. And onto your question, you know, when I started this project now almost four years ago, and certainly pre-Dobbs, the pre-Dobbs moment, I was intent only on doing a familiar thing for me, which was going into archives of different kinds. And I really want to qualify that, that archives for me are not only the thing that exists in the special collection, you know, inside of a museum or a university library, but, you know, the thing that live in a box in somebody's closet or, you know, the storage unit, you know, from a clinic or whatever the case, right, that there's a sort of continuum of the way that we hold on to things and the sort of logic by which we store them. So I had this idea, right, this is sort of a familiar logic for me that I would investigate what clinics had if anything, that I wanted to start with clinics. And I already had a relationship with preterm, which is the oldest abortion provider, in fact, in Ohio. It's in Cleveland. And because I've lived in Ohio for 10 years, I am connected and sort of networked with various abortion care workers, providers, feminist networks, etc. So I already had a relationship with them. I knew they had boxes and boxes of material. And that gave me a sort of clue about what else might be out there. So I want to be honest and say that for the first year of working on this project, maybe more, that was, I was sort of operating under the idea that that would be the extent of the project. And it was really Casey Riley, the curator on the project and the sort of co my co-conspirator who challenged me to make photographs in real time. You know, I would say I always feel a little bit nervous to center myself or otherwise sort of claim my role as a protagonist in the project, which are so invested otherwise in, you know, in centering feminist care networks and the women who have been doing this work on the ground for decades. But she really encouraged me to to name the role that I was already taking on, right? I was already there. I was already editorializing what pictures I wanted to go into the project. I was already building these relationships. I was nervous to pick up the camera again. I teach photography. As I said, I studied photography, but it had been years since I made my own photographs. And I bungled it. I exposed roles. There was lots of, you know, I I didn't load roles correctly. I mean, it was, it was embarrassing, but it was also revelatory. I found to be making photographs again to encounter the kind of closeness, you know, and vulnerability in that exchange again, you know, around which I'm normally so insulated. And, you know, finally, I think it had an effect of how can I say this, making the archive come unstuck in time, right? That to point to the fact that although the archive already is across a continuum of many decades, to sort of bring it right up to the present moment is to name how the struggle continues and how sort of just how unossified it is. So that felt like an important component. And yes, there was a lot of travel and it required 
literally putting myself in the picture, right? Literally and figuratively and enabled in that sense, relationship building in a way that I don't think would have been possible otherwise. The installation uh, features hundreds of photographs collaged or assemblaged, if that's a verb, on, on multiple walls in a gallery. Why do assemblages or installations of hundreds of pictures do the work, however you define the work and you just define the work, in a, in a way that's more, you know, air quotes, effective than, say, a series of eight photographs printed very large and installed in a classic white cube way? Well, as I said, I, I've always been interested in the volume, you know, how to sort of potentialize volume as it comes to pictures and display. I've always been interested in exploding these sort of conventions around how we look at photography as something linear, as something contained, as something sequential. Again, it's hard to name <laughs> exactly what it is, right? There's something ineffable about that desire, but it's always been with me. And I think, and I hope that it's particularly appropriate, you know, as I'm making a case for a broad-based coalition, right? Like for solidarity, for organizing, which just bluntly put requires a lot of energy, a lot of people, a lot of groundwork. And in that regard, it's important to me that it's all sort of simultaneous and concurrent, right? That we not be able to read it left to right across decade and in particular with this sort of large wall installation, which was one of the sort of three pieces in the show that we're talking about, you know, which I'm thinking about almost as you refer to it as assemblage. I'm almost thinking about it as like a quilt or something with warp and weft, something closer to a tapestry. It's in that it moves in different directions, right? And like kind of creates a narrative in some. It was really important that I weave together all the pieces of the story, right? So there's something like six or seven clinics and their materials. There's the photographs I made. And then there's, as I mentioned, you know, archival material coming in from all different orders of, you know, archives across the Midwest, which is something that we haven't mentioned yet, that this is all rooted in the Midwest. So it felt really important not just to have a lot volumetrically and having them go in different directions, but having them be in some sense unordered so that they could all be read you know, sort of in some sense, as simultaneously as, you know, 1600 images can be. I have not seen the installation in Minneapolis, but I've seen installation shots, which again, we'll, we'll have a number on manpodcast.com. It's really clear, though, from those installation shots that a viewer cannot stand or sit in the middle of the gallery and survey the walls that to understand or see what's in the work that a viewer has to physically move around, walk up to the work, be physically engaged with it, keep moving. Is any of that physical engagement with this work, or for that matter, other works, important or central to you? I hope I'm not being too reiterative in saying that I've never been interested, even for myself as a viewer, as I encounter other works in this model of a sort of like, you know, kind of museum model of like stand in front of artwork for 12 seconds and move to the right or something. You know, I have, I've always been attracted to this, not just this feeling, as I said, of being immersed, but almost, if this doesn't sound too hyperbolic, like dissolving the boundary 
between self and work, which means sort of not only playing with like a metric, like volume, but sort of also periphery, right? And like this question of moving back and forth, entering and sort of discharging yourself from the work or sort of being caught in its riptide in a way that photography does not normally operate. And then the other thing that I think that you're driving at too, which is really meaningful for me in the work is this question of labor. I mean, as much as the work is, you know, in and of like feminism as an ideology, right? It also belongs to a kind of labor history and set of questions, which is to say, first of all, feminism is work. I mean, it's joyful work, but it, you know, if anyone knows who's been involved in any kind of organizing, there's, <laughs> you know, there's meetings and there's spreadsheets and there's door knocking and there's talking to friends, right? And these things that are like fundamentally unphotographic. So it's important for me to name that. And it's also important for me to just describe and account for and make central the people who are answering the phone, <laughs> you know, like just really what it takes, right? There's like abortion or something on the ideological 30,000 foot level. And then there is the people who do the work, right? The staffers who clean medical equipment, sterilize medical equipment, physicians who perform abortions, people, as I said, women who answer the phone or, or check people in. That is for me, like the visuality of abortion care. And so that's entangled with labor in all sorts of ways. So it feels important to make that central. And also, if I'm, this isn't too abstract or otherwise abstruse, like I, I want to make my labor as an artist evident. I want to entangle the potential of those two things. And so as you're asking about sort of this question of how, how one is being circulated, I think that's a piece of it, right? That like that the work itself doesn't feel static or that it feels overwhelming or that the labor required to research and install it is like otherwise evident enough to build a kind of momentum in the room. To that point, are there certain activities, certain events, certain processes that you wanted to make sure were represented in the work over and over and over and over again? Yes. I mean, uh, I know I've said this, but I cannot impress enough upon you how many photographs there were of women answering the phone. And of course, when I went to clinics to make photographs, the phone was ringing off the hook, right? Like this is something that is in constant rotation in clinics and what an act of care that is, right? That there's someone on the other end answering the phone. So there's a number of photographs of that, but, you know, photographs across the board of staff birthday parties, take your daughter to work day, conferences, after parties from conferences, uh, workshops, trainings. I mean, it's like the quotidian stuff, you know, I will say one series of photographs that was quite moving for me that I saw illustrated in other ways across different archives, although not, not quite as sort of coherent and cogent a set was also from preterm, the clinic that I mentioned earlier in Cleveland. I came across a suite of photographs, maybe between 60 and 80 photographs, all of one person who was a model for this purpose. My guess is she was probably a staffer who was photographed going through the process. Again, this was staged, but going through the process of getting an abortion. So it was like literally started with her looking up the phone number of preterm in the clinic, making the phone call, walking to the clinic, ringing the doorbell, right? Like every step was photographed. 
And it was this kind of incredible heuristic guide and one that took really seriously what photographs can do as a tool of teaching and learning. And to your earlier question of like demonstrably showing this is what this thing looks like. You know, I remember, in fact, when I made my birth in 2018 in MoMA and the number of people who said to me, even folks who had given birth themselves, like, I didn't know what that looked like, you know, which was kind of wild series of encounters to have. And it just seemed so, as I said, sort of moving and poignant and particular that they had thought to make these series of photographs, which my guess were maybe used for either promotional purposes or education purposes, right, in service of individual and community kind of whatever outreach and edification, that those photographs existed and they moved through the entire process in the most kind of thoughtful and in some ways <laughs> gentle way. So I was quite moved by them. And they were the only set of photographs that I kept together and intact in the installation. Even if you have to look for them, they aren't otherwise dispersed like the rest. In preparing to talk to you, I was struck by something you told Jordan Weitzman in a conversation, parts of which were published in Vanity Fair. You said that you were struck by how many healthcare providers in many states pledged to clients and callers and really the general public that some version of this, and this was, we will offer the last safe abortion in fill-in-the-blank state or fill-in-the-blank county or whatever. So I don't, you know, there's a long history in American historical discourse about the white patriarchal construction of first and last, the first white men to enter, you know, the Ohio River Valley, the last Indian to die there. Within those so familiar, we hardly see them historical constructs, which have most been brought to the fore, I think, by a, a story, an, a story, an Ojibwe historian named Gene O'Brien, who teaches at the University of Minnesota. Within those constructs is this idea that something white men do is always first, and that something that happens to other people, non-white men, is always the last, even if it isn't the last, you know, even if obviously there are millions of Native Americans still, you know, alive and kicking in the United States, there is still this extremely long intense history of white dudes framing images and stories and poems, et cetera, as, you know, the last of their race. And, and so within that phrase that you noticed, there is a last construct. Why did that last construct strike you so clearly? And is it at all related to this long white patriarchal, or is it patriarchal? I always get that word wrong. Construction of lasts. Let me first start by saying just a small point of clarification that Jordan made the photograph for, for Vanity Fair, but Laura Regensdorf was the, yeah, it was a little bit unclear how they listed it on the site. And Jordan is a really interesting photographer in his own right and runs and operates a podcast called The Magic Hour, which he photographed me for when he did that interview in 2019. Okay, on to your question. The title comes from a series of conversations, almost verbatim conversations that I had with different staffers at different clinics. And I use the word staffer really consciously because it's inclusive of physicians, volunteers, you know, and those at clinics who, who you know, ready the beds and, and you know, clean the medical instruments and so forth. And, and, so forth. and that conversation 
almost always contained the phrase, we will provide the last safe abortion in Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky, Minnesota, right? You name it. And of course, Indiana has, of course, I mean, even in the last week, all but outlawed legal and safe abortion. And the sentence struck me in large part because it was being, I mean, uh, echoed almost like rhymed from environment to environment, state to state, clinic to clinic, but also because inside of it, there was a sentiment that was at once so resilient, so resolute, so determined to be there till the end. And at the same time, so elegiac, right? Like this idea that it's a matter of when and not if. And so I was quite struck by that and held on to it and was determined to put it as the show title in large part also because I wanted the word abortion to be in the show title. I didn't want to bury it, you know, in the didactic. I didn't want to name it reproductive justice, which I, or healthcare, which I believe in, but I also believe that part of the work of destigmatizing the procedure is naming it. So that was the background in terms, you know, of of the title itself. You know, as you were talking about kind of interrogating this white patriarchal value of first and last, I was thinking a lot about a project that I worked on really in a lot of ways that directly led into this project, a project called Brand New End Survival and Its Pictures, which I finished in 2022, so just last year, but was also quite a protracted project in terms of research and the kind of relationship building that came out of it. It was really instructive. And that was a project about domestic violence advocacy care workers and organizations. But when I, organizations is the wrong word, it's really about the women who do the work, again, on the ground of saving lives and building feminist solidarity inside of a world that harms women and marginalized people to the detriment of everybody. And the reason I bring that up is because, and I hope that this is not too far afield or long-winded, but one thing that I learned from that project was their insistence on the cyclical, right? Their insistence quite literally on a circle, like every tool they used, you know, every graphic tool, for instance, like a power control wheel or a wheel of emotions, which will be familiar to anybody who's even like been in a rape crisis center or women's shelter are all circles, like down to the infographics. When they do trainings or workshops, their tables are are circular. You know, they refer often to like consciousness raising and the formation of bodies in a circle, right? Like this idea, this, I mean, this, uh, this is not news. This is like an old feminist strategy that there be nobody at the head of the table, right? That like that, that this be like a lateral experience of kin building and support making in some ways, which I think also extends to an understanding of time, how time and survivorship and healing works, right? That it's not a straight line, not only that it's not a matter of a hierarchy who's sitting at the top of the table or something like that, who's in control, but also like, how do we support one another? How do we, what, what is the support structure? How do we gather on one another? And how does the process of repair actually work? What does it look like? So I hope, again, this isn't feeling too abstract, but is something you said about first and last as a patriarchal concept really reminded me of what 
what I gleaned and how powerful it was from that project and how I tried to carry that forward into this project. And in some ways, I can't help but wonder if the idea of trying to end abortion, (laughs) again, the most patriarchal of all concepts, right? Like that this will be the last abortion. I mean, of course, how wrong that is, right? That's embedded into the very idea that abortion will never end. I mean, it will become less safe. More people will die and there'll be horrible consequences. But this is a this is a circle, right? As feminist as all the other circles. Carmen Winan, thanks very much. Thank you. Closing this week at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Gary Simmons' Public Enemy is the first comprehensive career survey of the work of multidisciplinary artist Gary Simmons. Since the late 1980s, Simmons has played a key role in situating questions of race, class, and gender identity at the center of contemporary art discourse. Now, for the first time, through a major exhibition catalog and slate of related programs, visitors will gain a holistic understanding of the complex and profoundly moving work of this influential artist. The exhibition closes October 1st, So make sure to plan your visit to see Gary Simmons' Public Enemy at mcachicago.org. Support comes from Getty, presenting the groundbreaking new exhibition, Alfredo Bolton, looking at Venezuela 1928 to 1978, on view through January 7, 2024. Considered one of the most important champions of modern art and art history in Venezuela, Alfredo Bolton is shockingly under-recognized outside his home country until now. The exhibition explores Bolton from several angles, including his photographs of Venezuelan people and landscapes, connections to artists of his time, and his involvement in the development of art history in Venezuela. Experience the show in both English and Spanish, and enjoy additional programming, including a film screening and live jazz performance. Learn more and make free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Manil Collection in Houston, Texas presents... Hyper Real, Gray Foy, now through September 3rd. Between the 1940s and 1970s, American artist Gray Foy created a body of extraordinarily meticulous graphite drawings. The exhibition at the Manil spans the entirety of Foy's career, from his early surrealist compositions to his later inventive botanical and geological renderings. The show is on view at the Manil Drawing Institute. Find details at manil.org. The Manil Collection is always free. Welcome back. Next up, Nagar Azimi joins me to discuss her exhibition, Becoming Van Leo, the first international survey of the photography of the late Armenian artist known as Van Leo. It's on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles through November 5th. Born in Turkey, Leo became a leading studio photographer in Cairo between the 1940s and the 1960s. Azimi's exhibition includes some of Leo's earliest pictures from the 1930s, his extensive experiments with self-portraiture, they're pretty great, and his challenging of East-West binaries. Nagar Azimi, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Both Van Leo's story and his work are a product of diaspora, intersection, physical and cultural imperialism, and also of the way photography itself absorbed all of that, in this case through through work Leo made in Cairo from the 1940s or 30s really on. 
So before we get to some pictures, how did Leo's life and work manage to be a, a nexus of so many different things? <laughs> well, so Van Leo, which is not actually his real name, his real name is Levon Boyajon, was born to an Armenian family in Turkey, and he was part of the sort of extended Armenian diaspora in the aftermath of that country's genocide. And he was born in Turkey in a small town called Jahan. I hope I'm not mangling the pronunciation. And ended up in Egypt, as many Armenians did, sort of getting spread out in the furthest reaches of what was formerly the Ottoman Empire. And they ended up in Cairo, speaking many languages. I mean, Van Leo's father famously spoke seven languages. He was raised speaking Armenian, English, French, and Arabic, and was very much a part of an Armenian community, but also an Egyptian community, as well as an extended sort of expatriate community that was in Egypt primarily before the 1952 revolution, which also included Italians, Jews of all stripes, Greeks, Armenians, and beyond. So he was really part of a kind of hodgepodge moment, a very cosmopolitan moment in Egypt, which becomes sort of a, a theme in his work to come. How does Van Leo become interested in photography? And, and, and really, I guess, does that interest in photography have anything to do with, you know, kind of being at a crossroads of Europe and Africa and the Middle East? Just by way of introduction, the Armenian diaspora played a very big role in the history of photography in the extended Ottoman Empire. Some of the most prominent photographers throughout the region were Armenians. And I'm not sure to what extent he was aware of that, but certainly as a youth, he interned at a studio called Studio Venus in downtown Cairo. The mythology around this internship is that, you know, he was so proficient, so, so talented that the proprietor of Studio Venus actually eventually asked him to leave, perhaps viewing him as a potential competitor. Now, in terms of where the interest in photography comes, his father bought him his first camera and there was actually a camera salesman or a camera shop just under the family home. It was called Nessie Bion. They lived on 26th of July Street. It's now called 26th of July Street, but before the Egyptian Revolution of 1952, it was called Avenue Fouad, named after the king. And um, so it would seem natural that, you know, there was a camera shop under the building. So it was certainly part of his, you know, daily visual culture. But his father bought him this camera, which was a Roloflex camera. And with that camera, and it was probably not clear exactly how old he was. He was a teenager, started taking his first photographs. And there are a lot of mysteries when it comes to Van Leo's sort of life and trajectory. And one of them is many of his first encounters with the camera were in conjunction with a Chinese bachelor who lived in Egypt in the 1930s and 1940s. And his name was Lu Shichang. He was a Chinese businessman involved in the textile trade and was a neighbor of the Boyajions. And Van Leo seemed to take his first photographs in the company of this Chinese man. They would go to the pyramids, they would go to the Buddha garden, they would, you know, sort of take adventures around town and take photographs of each other, of the sites, etc. And years later, Van Leo took a sort of formal portrait of this man, Lu Chang, And on the back of it, he wrote something along the lines of, you know, he introduced me to photography or the gift of photography. So, so there was some, that was absolutely some sort of faithful encounter between himself and this older man who became sort of his partner in photo making for some years. The nature of their relationship, you know, is a little bit of a mystery, but it's a beautiful mystery. And that's 
one of the the kind of subtexts or strands of the exhibition. Is Leo always or or primarily a studio photographer? Absolutely. I mean, that was his public face. He was known as one of the most prominent studio photographers in Egypt in the 1940s and 50s, 60s and onward. And that means people, you know, it was a tradition for people to come get a studio portrait taken. It's not something we do anymore, both much more than a mere passport photo. It was a photograph that was, you know, a sort of ritual. It was um, a ceremony. It took a really long time. It was much anticipated. It wasn't cheap. That's where he practiced his art. He did take photographs to a certain extent of, you know, sort of prominent sites around Egypt. He also did take photographs of people on the streets, etc. But that was never his core competence, nor was it his interest. He was really a kind of obsessed with the art of illusion, I would say. And I, I think in one of the interviews that I carried out for the book that we that accompanies the exhibition, I think someone actually says that he was you know, sort of master at the art of plastic surgery. So he would make people look their best. And that had to happen in the studio with the elaborate lights, with the retouching, with the darkroom process, etc. So that's how he became known was as a studio photographer. We're going to talk about specific pictures in a, in a moment, but I want to dwell on, on, on what you just said about the studio for a moment. I think that in the United States context, studio portraiture, which goes back to the 1850s, settled into genrehood and became ossified fairly quickly. And I think the work in this exhibition is, is anything but that. <laughs> How might we understand how Leo operated his studio and maybe how that enabled his work to stretch some boundaries. I mean, he was very much obsessed with Hollywood. He was very much obsessed with what one might call glamour photography or sort of the French model, which is Studio Arcourt. And he recreated that that ethos in his studio. It was absolutely a ritual. So the photo process at his studio would take hours there'd be an initial visit in which you'd sort of perhaps show you some samples, you'd talk about what one might wear, potential poses, et cetera, et cetera. You'd get a feel for the person and then you'd come back for an appointment. And that appointment could stretch out for hours in which he's moving back and forth between the subject and the camera, adjusting the light, adjusting the poses, et cetera. And it was kind of tortuous for many people, especially children, you can imagine. How did he keep that tradition alive? I think Egypt was the Hollywood of the Arab film world. And therefore, there was a lot of, there was a sort of interest and obsession with film culture, with glamour, not only of, you know, global film culture, but certainly local film culture. And he tapped into that. He took photographs of prominent actors and actresses like Omar Sharif is probably the one that American listeners will know the best because of um, Lawrence of Arabia and other films. But people like Samia Gamal, Fatin Hamama, who was Omar Sharif's first wife, Rushdie Abaza, who was a very prominent actor, half Egyptian, half Italian, etc. And I think for the average person coming to, they were aware of his photographs of these film stars. And I think probably for the, the so-called average person who came in, they wanted to recreate that glamour and that posture, which was extremely exciting. So, you know, the question of whether studio photography extended, had a longer life in Egypt than it did in the Western world or in the United States. I'm not actually sure, but I, I think it's fair to say so. I think, I think people were still going in to get those traditional ritualistic portraits done in Egypt well into the 1960s and 70s. And then, of course, there was a renaissance again, and I can talk about that later in the 1990s at the end of his career, a sort of desire to tap into something that was a little bit 
atavistic and retro. You mentioned that Van Leo took a lot of glamorous pictures of glamorous people who live transnational lives. He also took photographs that were like large numbers of photographs that were less glamorous, such as of soldiers or passport photos. How are those represented in the exhibition? And how in particular did soldiers come to be a significant subject for somebody who was also so interested in the glamorous? By way of background, Van Leo started his studio, his first studio, with his brother Angelo. And Angelo was his older brother, more charismatic, more talkative, whereas Van Leo was very shy. The two brothers were perfect foils of each other, absolutely rivals. That's another story. And they opened their first studio in the family home. And it was called Studio Angelo in deference to the the older brother. And it was during World War II. And their first customers were actually entertainers who were stationed in Cairo to entertain the troops that were stationed in Cairo. And so they were dancers, theater actors, etc. And one of their ingenious ideas was to exchange free photographs of these entertainers in exchange for advertising in theater bills, for example. And that so so what you see in the show is a sort of small cross-section of these entertainers. Again, World War II era entertainers, often from South Africa and from like the sort of the extended allied territories there to entertain the troops. And they obviously had some sort of tendency toward, they were performers, they tended to be often extravagantly good looking. And so it lent itself to um, studio work. So the soldiers that you see in the show aren't actual soldiers, but I think the one that that is in the exhibition. I can't remember if it's actually in the exhibition, but there certainly is a prominent soldier in his body of work is actually an actor who's part of a sort of theater troupe. One of his most famous photographs and certainly his most favorite was a South African dancer called Teddy Lane. Beautiful face. Van Leo had actually smeared his face with Vaseline, which gives it a kind of surrealistic aspect. But again, so the early photographs tended to be entertainers. But beyond that, yeah, the majority of his work involved photographing ordinary people. I've always said that I think his most interesting photographs were not of the the already famous, but the almost famous, which is to say people who are aspiring film stars, people who were, you know, spending time auditioning and, and dreaming. And there's something very powerful about that encounter and that gaze. It's very subtle. And that's sort of my view after like years of looking at these photographs. But I do think that beyond the so-called greatest hits, some of the most compelling photographs in his body of work are, again, of of so-called ordinary people. And then, of course, his bread and butter was at some point became passport photos, which are very ordinary and banal and, um, and pragmatic. And I made some effort in the exhibition to show some of those so-called ordinary photographs, because it wasn't all always, you know, Omar Sharif walking in the door. You mentioned that photograph of Teddy Lane. We'll have it on manpodcast.com. It is a great combination of a face lit in such a way that it looks like a mask, great eyes, frozen gaze, and sculptural hair. (laughs) It's pretty great. Speaking of people creating people and people creating personae. As I understand it, there are about 400 Leo self-portraits that survive, and they are they're all kinds of things. How and why was self-portraiture important to Van Leo? Again, this is one of the fascinating mysteries is how he came to become, how he came to be so um, invested in self-portraiture. The first self-portraits we have 
of Van Leo are from the 1930s. He's still a teenager. There's one iconic photograph that's one of the, the principal images in the exhibition in which he's photographed himself against a wallpaper. And he's wearing a white suit and he's actually probably with um, with pencils, recreated the pattern of the wallpaper on the suit. So a very effortful, very idiosyncratic image of himself. He's a teenager. I mentioned his Chinese friend, Lu Shi Chang, with whom he took a lot of photographs. And it seems that a lot of the first experiments in self-portraiture probably took part in Mr. Chang's apartment. Why do we think that? On the back of one of the photographs, it, there's actually a small note that says, in the Chinese house. So it's a bit ambiguous, a bit uh, mysterious, but it seems that in the 1930s, he started taking self-portraits in Mr. Chang's house and experimenting with, uh, to a certain extent, with costumery. So wearing different hats, changing his shirt, certain poses, a playful look, a serious look, etc. And then that extended into the 1940s. And, you know, he took self-portraits throughout his life, but between the years 1940 and 1944 in particular, he took hundreds. And there's sort of a, a story that I inherited probably from him, but I'm not sure, which is that he would close his studio every day for a couple of hours, probably for lunch break, for siesta, whatever. And it was during those hours that he would experiment with self-portraits and take these elaborate photographs of himself. Again, as you said, with different persona, as a prisoner, as Zorro, as a bald man, as a villain, as a woman, there are a number of photographs of himself dressed as a woman, and so on and so forth. Now, the question of what he was doing and why he was doing it remains a mystery. And I think it's a really productive mystery. Was he doing, was he making these photographs to show customers as sort of samples as to, you know, sort of the games that they can play vis-a-vis -vis identity? Uh, was it just vanity? Was it just, you know, was it a personal art project that he thought would one day find life in a museum like the Hammer? Why? Why was he taking these self-portraits? It's unclear. Most of them were not printed, which is revealing. A number of them were, but most of them actually just remained negatives hmm. on being printed for the first time on the occasion of this exhibition. So it's it's fun to speculate as to why he took these portraits. And, and surely we don't have all of them. I mean, a number of the the negatives deteriorated over time and may have been lost to history. But but we do have access, as you said, to at least to several hundred, and they're terrific. And for many people, they're the crux of his work or that they're part of what makes him so unique in the context of 20th century photography from that region. You know, it often uh, referred to him as Cindy Sherman, a sort of Cindy Sherman-like character. And Only course, two generations earlier. Yeah, <laughs> Two exactly. full generations earlier. Yeah, and I've actually shown the work to Cindy, and she's she was very taken by it for obvious reasons. He was really ahead of his time. He was really ahead of his time. How did Van Leo navigate the shift toward color? Color was a catastrophe for him. He never ceased to bitch about it. it. For him, it was the end of the art of photography. He really believed that photography was an art. You know, what happened in the darkroom was, you know, a sort of secret ritual. One had to be sort of trained in the arts of uh, being a photographer. And the sort of point and shoot instantaneous aspect of color photography was dispiriting for him. And you can actually say that his career ended, that, you know, he sort of suffered an early death with the advent of color photography. His color photographs are much less compelling. There's none of the, the hand tinting that he was known for, the retouching, again, the elaborate games with light, 
that he liked to play in the studio. So he was very vocal about how color photography was the end of an era, was the end of his art, it was the end of Van Leo in many, in many ways. And as you'll see in the exhibition, there's I've included a number of color photographs and they're, you know, they're they're sort of traces of the 1980s and 90s. They're a little bit garish, they're a little kitsch, they're cute, but they're very far removed from the artistry that preceded that preceded them in black and white. By the late 1990s, Leo's oeuvre and importance were not yet clear, but beginning in around 2000, that begins to change. How has the reception of his work, maybe the historiography around him, blossomed over the last couple decades? Why do you think that's happened? I would give a lot of credit to um, people like Okuyen, the late Okuyen Wazor, who created some interest around studio photography, vernacular photography in the so-called sort of non-Western world. A number of photographers in West Africa, Seydou Malik Sidibe, for example, had prominent showings in prominent museums and they're sort of created an interest outside of sort of anthropology around the artistry of studio photography. And I think Van Leo benefited from that beginning in the late 1990s and was often placed in that sort of, in that context. And then I would also credit the work of the Arab Image Foundation, which is an organization that I'm a part of, uh, which is an unusual artist-driven organization that was founded in Beirut in the late 1990s by three artists, um, Akram Zatari, Fouad Al-Khoudi, and Samir Mahdad, and started to sort of rethink the manner in which we experience and inventorize and make sense of photography in the Middle East. And they produced a small book on Van Leo and two other prominent Armenian studio photographers in Cairo of the 20th century that I think helped put him on the map. He won a prize shortly thereafter, shortly thereafter called the Prince Klaus Award. And then, you know, there were small exhibitions here and there. And I think he also had a strong outsized sense of his own import. So he was a sort of willing participant in these efforts. Of course, he died before he could see you know, sort of the full fruition of this of this recognition of his work. But again, I think that I think that he benefited from a sort of a reappraisal of studio photography from the non-Western world, studio photography in particular, and and the artistry of it. And I think I would also add that one of the sort of themes that comes across in the exhibition is that Van Leo had an outsized sense of his own importance, which is, which is charming. And, you know, he felt that he was born at the wrong time, perhaps in the wrong place, that he was under-recognized. One of his immigration forms, he, he consistently applied to emigrate abroad, but he never did. And this is, again, one of the mysteries of his life. On one of his immigration forms to the United States, he writes, you know, photography is, an, is a gift from God. And so he was really one of his own greatest partisans and advocates. The hope is that this exhibition puts him on the map as more than just, you know, a sort of curiosity or as a studio photographer from a certain time and a place. But I think that the games that he played with persona, both the formal games, the psychological games that he played are very, very unique and merit further study. And no doubt there are other people like him um, mm. that have yet to be you know, sort of discovered and thought about and and worked on. The self-portraits are certainly an argument for that last point. Negar Azimi, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. 
Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.